episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show, bringing you again another fascinating guest, helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us on many different fronts. Uh, and today we have the true honor of being joined by Dr. Anthony Atala, G-Link Professor and Director of Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine and the W. Boyce Professor uh, and Chair of Urology, uh, practicing surgeon and researcher in the area of regenerative medicine. Uh, Dr. Atala has 50 applications of his technologies uh, that have already been used clinically. Uh, he is the editor of, of 25 books, three journals, has published close to a thousand journal articles and received over 250 national and international patents. Uh, Dr. Atala was elected to the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, National Academy of Inventors, a charter fellow, and the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering. Uh, and Dr. Atala is the recipient uh, of numerous awards, including uh, listing just a few here, the United States Congress-funded Christopher Columbus Foundation Award, who was bestowed upon a living American who's currently working on a discovery that will significantly affect society, uh, the World Technology Award in Health and Medicine for achieving significant and lasting progress, the Edison Science Medical Award for Innovation, the R&D Innovator Year Award, and the Smithsonian Ingenuity Award for Bioprinting Tissue and Organs, uh, an extensive list uh, of additional uh, acknowledgments. Uh, Dr. Atala has led or served several national professional and government committees as well, including the National Institutes of Health Working Group on Cells and Developmental Biology, the National Institute of Health Bioengineering Consortium, and the National Cancer Institute Advisory Board. He is a founding member of the Tissue Engineering Society, the Regenerative Medicine Foundation, Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Innovation Consortium, the Regenerative Medicine uh, Development Organization, and the Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Society. Um, and we're glad to have him today. Uh, Dr. Anthony Atala, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today and talk to us. Thank you, Ira. It's nice to connect with you and uh, thank you for that uh, lengthy intro. Maybe your mom, my mom, uh, talked to you about things. <laughs> As you know, I probably could have gone another half hour, but I, I, I thought we should get things started. But it, it, it's, it's great having you uh, again, seeing you after a couple of years now. And, you know, I was um, uh, talking with you before the show that uh, in the other room here, I have a, a copy of a huge book entitled Principles of Regenerative Medicine. It's the first edition from back in uh, 2007, uh, edited by Dr. Anthony Atala. Also, other luminaries like Bob Lanza, Barbara Norem, Jamie Thompson. Um, and, you know, it's a rather encyclopedic uh, knowledge of our segment. Uh, and, and it's some of them that was there uh, at the very beginning, at the inception of this regenerative medicine space. I'd love if you just took a few minutes to talk a little bit about uh, your top line on, you know, how things have progressed, how you see things uh, since 27 or 15 years have gone by since the first edition of this book. You know, what has uh, surprised you, what has uh, challenged you over the last 15 years uh, in, in terms of the general um, you know, overlay of, of, uh, of regenerative medicine space now. You know, Ira, it's interesting you should say that because now we're actually, you know, published the third edition of that book. And every five years, you know, we come up with a new edition. And each time we do that, of course, it's a time for reflection in terms of what's happened over the prior five years. But, you know, when we look back to 15 years ago, so much has changed. You know, it's amazing to see the advances that have been made in the field. I mean, if you really think about it, it was just, you know, started out with just a handful of folks working in this area. 
And, you know, today there's not probably a single large university or medical center that's not involved in some aspect of regenerative medicine. You know, it was considered science fiction before it's not considered science fact. You know, in fact, at that time, I remember clearly when the NIH, uh, you know, when the field got started, they were not really funding regenerative research, right? They, they, they actually said, well, when you can all prove that it's not science fiction, but science fact. But of course, the work was being done. And there were many, of, many, many people that laid the groundwork for where we are today. Really a long way. We've come a long way. But, but still, even now, 2022, so much more to do and so many things that we need to get done to really keep advancing the field forward. And, and you know, along those lines, uh, you know, you and I chatted about two years ago now, uh, and one of the key topics that you were talking about at the time that you were trying to impart upon the audience was uh, the the importance of vascularization in the regenerative process and the importance of uh, whether it's nutrients or trophic factors or getting rid of waste. The, the importance that uh, regenerative medicine is a lot more than, than just the cells. We hear, obviously, we hear a lot about stem cells, but uh, the appropriate blood flow and constructing these tissues is also critical. And, and, and very recently, and I, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago that your team uh, uh, at uh, Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine, two awards um, for research on the International Space Station, looking at different approaches in the NASA Vascular Tissue Challenge. Sort of re-educate us a little bit on vascularization, you know, where we come, the importance of it, and uh, a little bit about what you're learning, not just in terms of the vascularization space, but also what's happening up in space in terms of microgravity and other learnings for developing some of these complex organs that you're working on. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about regenerative medicine, of course, we're talking about many different strategies, right? But one of the major strategies that we use is taking a very small sample of tissue from the patient's organ, very small, less than half the size of a postage stamp. We then are able to expand those cells outside the body and or use uh, other cell populations. And then we can then create the therapy. We can either create a scaffold system where we lay the cells so we can 3D print it. Uh, or we can just use hydrogels for injection. But at the end of the day, it's really using the patient's own cells to engineer tissue or organs or create therapies in the laboratory that can then be transferred to patients. That's the concept. And of course, a major challenge that we talked about just a few years ago um, was vascularization You know, for the larger structures, for the solid organs like the liver, the heart. These are very complex organs because they require much higher demands in terms of nutrition. And of course, that nutrition comes to those organs via vascularization or blood vessels. So when we talk about uh, tissues and organs, it may be helpful to talk about the four different types of structures and how complex they are. Flat structures such as skin being the least complex, uh, tubular structures such as uh, blood vessels, uh, being the second level of uh, complexity because you, you, it's not a flat structure. Architecturally, it's more complex. Um, they're all complex, by the way, but there's increasing levels of complexity. You need, to re you need to allow that tube to remain open to allow fluid or air to go through. And then you have uh, hollow non-tubular organs like the bladder or the stomach, which are the third level of complexity because the architecture is more complex. There's more interaction with other organs. And finally, the most complex organs are the solid organs, like the liver, the lung, the kidney, where the challenge there is that the cells are complex, the structure is complex, but the massive number of cells present 
demands major uh, major nutrition to come in to keep these uh, tissues alive. And therefore, vascularity then becomes a problem. And of course, you mentioned the NASA Vascular Tissue Challenge. And of course, you've probably been aware uh, of that for, for a number of years. In fact, what actually brought uh, attention to you to the uh, NASA Vascular Challenge first before we, we cover that? Um, I mean, actually, for me, it was uh, the studies that uh, were highlighting the differences. It was actually the NASA twin study <laughs> that showed that in microgravity, a variety of very unique things happen with the twin that's up there in the space station for a year. The guy sits down here on uh, on Earth where there's a lot more gravity. Um, but the interesting thing in, in your case is what you're learning in terms of um, obviously not just the vascularization, but uh, obviously we develop <laughs> in a very unique environment that isn't, you know, we're floating around in nine months as, uh, as we go from one cell to trillions. Um, that's what sort of <laughs> got me, mo you know, perked me most up when I heard about it. Yeah, that's interesting because I think most people actually would say the same thing that you did, right? How can microgravity affect these tissues and organs? And the fact is that, of course, through, the, through NASA, the interest is how can we use space to help things here on Earth, as well as, of course, uh, space travel in the future. Sure. And, and therefore, the NASA Vascular Challenge, the aim for that was to be able to create uh, vascularized structures uh, of a significant size that could be kept alive and under nutrition uh, over 30 days with uh, functional uh, features that would show that the tissue is still alive. And so we ended up, um, we had a couple of approaches we wanted to go after and the Vascular Tissue Challenge was announced along with the Methuselah Foundation and they co-funded co the program. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and the challenge was basically, can you achieve this? And it was first to reach. Uh, that's what the, the competition was first to reach, the first mm -hmm. team to actually achieve that. Uh, and they were going to award three prizes, first, second, and third prize. And there were a lot of entries for the challenge, but we decided that we would try two different approaches because we were looking at uh, a couple of approaches. And so we, we started out with an approach where you can actually just use a... Uh, um, a vascular uh, model, just like we do in humans with a blood vessel, a tubular structure coming in. And the other one was uh, the use of spongy-like tissue, like the mm -hmm. liver, right? Because when you think about it in the body, you, you get vascularized in various ways, but the two major ways are using tubular structures like large blood vessels or, and then of course they go into lower and lower uh, size uh, uh, vehicles in terms of capillaries. Uh, or you have this uh, spongy tissue where it's really like this cavernous area where blood just flows through like a sponge. And so we decided we're going to try both approaches. But of course, we've been working on printers for a number of years, as you know. And we started working on printers over 20 years ago. Uh, and printers that would specifically create tissues and organs for us because we had already implanted some tissues into patients and we wanted to make sure we could scale up the technology. So we spent a long time time and a large number of years really developing these printers. Uh, and so using our printing technology, we then uh, uh, proposed two different strategies. And we were lucky uh, uh, to be able to bring both strategies all the way to the end uh, and to show that that in fact could be done. These structures could be engineered 
uh, they could keep, they could be uh, kept alive. We had the same team members, uh, the same team members from the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine uh, with uh, two different approaches, but it was basically the same team members just uh, uh, looking at both uh, strategies. And thankfully we were able to achieve uh, first to reach and then second to reach. We actually had to kind of flip a coin here internally to see which project would go first. <laughs> it was the same team, so it, same team members, so it didn't really matter. Um, and uh, we're fighting the clock and uh, to make that happen. And uh, thankfully we're able to achieve uh, the vascular challenge with both strategies. Um, and uh, to our surprise, we we're hoping somebody else would come along as well with another strategy, because that would have been helpful mm -hmm. uh, to the field, but that did not occur. So hopefully there's still more work that can be done. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, so you're, you're extremely well known in terms of actually working on these complex solid organs, but you know, one uh, sort of intermediary step uh, that has become very hot and, and, and you've been very active in the last couple of years uh, is using these same regenerative medicine uh, technologies and strategies uh, as tools for discovering uh, and testing new drugs. And the um, sort of the intermediary step there between sort of a, a complete organ and cells is something called an organoid, which best be described as a, a tiny version of an organ. Um, your lab is working, I think I read something on 40 different tissues and organs from the human body. And, you know, obviously uh, drug discovery is expensive, drug development is expensive. And if we can, you know, know things that we don't learn in mice or rats using these small organoids, we can save hundreds of millions of dollars along the way and potentially shorten uh, the path towards new drug development. Talk a little bit about what you're doing in the organoid space nowadays as it pertains to novel drug development. Yeah, Ira, thanks for um, asking about that because it's really a very interesting area actually. And, you know, as you know, when we are trying to take tissues into patients, and you mentioned we already have 15 applications of technologies in our patients, but the bottom line is that a lot of these are, when you look at, we talked about flat tubular, hollow non-tubular structures, mm -hmm. but they're really, um, in a way, flat structures shaped different, in different ways, right? Uh, that provide more challenges architecturally. Uh, solid organs is a larger challenge, and as we talked about, uh, is a solid organ that's a major challenge because we can create now the flat tubular and non-tubular structures that we can put into patients. For the solid structures, we had to go through major challenges and that's why the vascular tissue challenge was important. But I mentioned this because the challenge is not to make things smaller. The challenge is to make things larger. Okay. And that is where the organoids come in because once we knew how to create these uh, tissues and organs, it was actually easy for us to miniaturize the system and using the same regenerative medicine strategies. And the approach that we took, we actually um, wrote a white paper on this back around 2002, believe it or not. So it was like, you know, uh, 20 years ago. Yep. And really it had no traction. It was considered science fiction, you know, because remember even Regen Med was, you know, still in its infancy. And so, the concept of using these strategies for uh, drug testing, drug, uh, 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 drug discovery, uh, personalized medicine was really considered also science fiction. And, and so one of the, uh, but to us, uh, the strategy was a lot easier because as you can imagine, we were working on engineering tissues that we could implant into patients. 
right? And that's what we did. We implanted uh, some of these tissues into patients. So for us to actually miniaturize the system became a simpler strategy, but also to miniaturize it in a way where you would be creating these miniature structures in the same manner as you would if we were put into a patient as a larger structure. And that's really the, the approach that we took. So it was not just really a cluster of cells, but it was really for the specific organ, it had to be all the major cell types present in that organ, same proportion, yep. using an extracellular matrix, just like we do to engineer a, a tissue for a patient. So we used a lot of the same strategies to come up with these miniature tissues that you could then place on a, uh, on a small slide, and we we can we started to look at printing these, so <clears throat> we could actually we can actually print the organoids, which are the miniature structures, and the chip at the same time, so we can print all together, and that's something we were working towards to be able to print everything together, and then you could lay different organs on the same chip, so you can mm -hmm. have hearts, lungs, livers, kidneys, all on the same chip. And then you could use that for drug testing and drug discovery and personalized medicine. And we've done that now using many different strategies. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, thankfully uh, been able to succeed with just an amazing team here at the mm -hmm. Institute, just an amazing team that has been able to bring these technologies all the way uh, to, to practicality now, where we can in fact use these technologies uh, for drug testing and safety and toxicity and discovery. As well as medicine. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the personalized medicine there can't be overstated because uh, it, it's one thing to be able to print you know tons of heart organoids and do all sorts of cardiotoxicity testing, but it, it, I think the the future vision there is you know uh, Anthony Dr. Anthony Atala's heart and my heart, different hearts, different pharmacogenomics and toxicogenomics and all sorts of things, and you really have the potential there to uh, to bring personalized medicine uh, to a level that uh, hasn't been seen before, so that's extremely um, exciting. Um, the, you know, the other aspect of the, the organoid work, which I, I personally found fascinating, is, you know, when we get into some of these areas where uh, not only sort of is not an animal model good, but no human model is good, and that is when we get into the area of countermeasures research. And obviously, uh, we've heard a lot about the BARDA, Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority here in the U.S. in recent years due to the, the pandemic. But, um, you know, our defense agencies are very concerned about not just biological, chemical, radiological, and so forth. Talk a little bit about just your vision for using these organoids. I know you've gotten some, some funding there from the government in, in countermeasures research as well. Yeah, we actually developed a system with the help of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, DITRA. And they're the ones who actually funded the work initially, and they've been uh, uh, big supporters of this program since the onset, uh, mainly because of its potential use for chemical and biological defense. Uh, and so, um, and now BARDA has also been a major uh, proponent of using these technologies for chemical uh, warfare, you know, to try to find out what happens with chemical warfare and how can we prevent it, basically. And so the system is such that because you're using uh, human cells uh, and because you're using three-dimensional structures, they're more representative of the human response, right? So we have to go back to the reality that, you know, when drugs get developed, it takes years Mm -hmm. to get a target to a clinical trial, 
<clears throat> and it takes, you know, could take $100 million to take that drug all the way to the first patient trial. But the reality of what may, people may not realize, many people don't realize, is that uh, even though all those years have been spent and, you know, you may spend $100 million to develop this drug just to take it to a phase one, the, that 90% of the drugs that enter phase one clinical trials never make it out. They fail, 90%. And the ones that succeed takes, you know, many, many years and at a cost over a billion dollars. And the reason that 90% are failing, major reasons are toxicity as well as, uh, uh, as, well as uh, uh, challenges with efficacy, mm-hmm. right? And so part of the strategy then is, to use these systems to, to fight these off. And so, for example, we, we've tested these extensively. I'll give you a couple of examples on why BARDA and DITRA and, and countermeasures are important. Sure. But I'll give you some practical examples first. It was a drug called Hismanol. Okay. It was an antihistamine yeah. um, for allergy. It was an allergy medicine, and it was extensively used. It had been tested in cell lines, no toxicity was noted, had been tested in animal models, no toxicity, went into phase one, two, and three human clinical trials, no toxicity, was released into the marketplace 11 years before there were enough patients where they could connect the dots to show that the drug actually was causing uh, heart block. So the drug was finally recalled uh, by the FDA, uh, rightly so, and uh, so we took that drug, tested our system. Within two weeks, we knew that drug was toxic. <laughs> same mechanism of action, heart block, same dose response. Uh, I'll give you a second more tragic story. Resolin, an anti-diabetic. Sure. Was in the market for three years. Uh, same thing, was tested in cell lines, animal models, phase one, two, and three human clinical trials. Three years within its release, there were 63 deaths due to liver failure. The drug was recalled. We tested the drug in our system. We're able to show the same mechanism of action in terms of toxicity, uh, showed that this uh, drug was toxic, uh, same type of dose response. So why is it then? The question is, why is it that these systems are so sensitive? Mainly because you're using normal human three-dimensional tissues, mm-hmm. right? You're not using cell lines, which are not uh, like the normal tissue. And as you know, animal models just are not great, you know? Uh, you can cure anything in a mouse, for example, as you know. And so, so it's challenging. So these systems are strong. So the next step was how can we actually test agents using this same system, this body in a chip, using this same system to actually uh, look at uh, adverse agents like chemicals mm-hmm. uh, that could be used, you know, for bad things, you know, or... Uh, or biologics, you know, some of these nerve agents, for example, uh, or chemical agents, or, uh, uh, or or bad viruses that could be used. Uh, so you have all this combination of viral agents and and uh, you know uh, chemical agents. And then the question is how how do these organs in the body? Re- and you, as you know, you can't really test this in a human, right? You can't just throw these things at a human and saying, well, what's ha- going to happen? So Step one was what do these agents really do in this model, in this 3D uh, body in a chip uh, model? That's step number one. Number two, what are the antidotes mm-hmm. that we can start looking at that will help us to fight these? And that's really what the work is about, is medical countermeasures for agents which are uh, dangerous to us 
uh, as a society. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, your group, Donnie, at Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine is the, or if not one of the largest regenerative medicine institutes in the world. And now uh, you have an additional component to it known as Regenerator, which is, sounds like a fascinating uh, incubator for the uh, sort of the next generation that's coming along, the startups uh, with the new ideas. Uh, talk a little bit about, obviously you have so much, so much going on in your own labs, but what's gonna be happening with Regenerator uh, in the, uh, the Wake Forest uh, ecosystem? Well, you know, in 2008, we started to realize, you know, we had started working, of course, with 3D printing about 20 years ago to scale up technologies. But around 2008, we realized that we really needed to make manufacturing a focus because at that point, we had already started to put things into patients. And we realized that you just can't be doing these things by hand, yep. right? Uh, it's okay to do to create these structures by hand if you're treating a, a small number of patients. But if you really want to scale up these technologies, then you have to scale up production in terms of making sure that you can give reproducibility, reliability, lower the cost of the product, and really get these things available to patients clinically. And so uh, in 2008, we started uh, really the, 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 the first manufacturing initiative for the field because we saw the need, right? I mean, we were really doing this in patients, so we saw the need for this manufacturing initiative. And we initially, uh, partnered, our uh, first partnership was with NC State, with the School of Industrial Engineering. And we went to them and said, we really need to apply industrial engineering uh, principles to Regen Med. You know, and uh, of course, North Carolina has been big in manufacturing for many years. They were big in manufacturing for textiles, uh, tobacco, uh, furniture, and now computers, right? North Carolina, is, as you know, is a, a big state in terms of manufacturing. And so, uh, having this industrial engineering approach to Regen Med was a smart, you know, it just seemed to us that's a smart thing to do. And following that, um, we start working just, you know, uh, at an academic level uh, doing that. And in 2014, we actually, through the Regen Med Foundation, which is a foundation that we started uh, around 2005, through, that Regen through the Regen Med Foundation, we had our annual Regen Med uh, Foundation meeting in Berkeley, California. And we made the focus of that meeting uh, biomanufacturing for RegenMed. That was the focus of the meeting, really kind of launching this concept. Manufacturing is going to be important in terms of how can we bring all the stakeholders together. Yep. Uh, and we did that through the RegenMed Foundation to start uh, the first effort around manufacturing called the, with the first industry academic effort called the Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Innovation Consortium which was a, cons a consortium of uh, uh, an industry-driven uh, industry consortium that was basically aimed at coming up with the next technologies for manufacturing. So we had all these companies working together. Many people asked, well, how can we get industry to work together? And the way we did that mainly was by, by showing that everyone could agree that they could work together in the pre-competitive space. Mm -hmm. Right, because you have all these companies out there competing. One company may be working on cell therapy for heart disease. Another company may be working on, you know, maybe engineering cartilage. But at the end of the day, all of them could agree we need better ways for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, the Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Innovation Consortium came in. 
we were able to obtain a $75 million commitment from the industry members mm -hmm. to advance the technology. The government gave another commitment of $75 million, uh, so $150 million commitment between industry and, uh, and, and the government. Mm -hmm. And through that commitment, we basically started to apply for projects. Um, and one of the first area, uh, uh, actually uh, the first, the first body to start funding this uh, in terms of manufacturing for RegenMed was some, the was MTech, uh, um, which is a uh, which is a uh, other transaction authority from the Department of Defense called MTEC, mm. MTEC, and so they were they were they were they received the first drop of money for manufacturing, and we were able to get the first drop of money to help support this consortium that is working on major projects such as Universal BioInc, Universal Media. Uh, universal bioreactors, things that the field can use. And uh, following that, we started, um, you know, the next, uh, through this uh, consortium, we started what's called the Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Society, which, uh, you know, the consortium was really membership driven. You had mm -hmm. to really, um, you know, uh, be part of it in terms of the activities that were going on within uh, the research. Um, uh, or you had a choice to do so. The society was really, how do you disseminate this, this, disseminate this information to everybody, right? You want everyone to have this information. Mm -hmm. so, so through the RegenMed Foundation, well, we started having these annual meetings of the RegenMed Manufacturing Society. The next step really was, um, you know, we got to do even better than this. We really do. And that's where the Regenerator concept came out. The Regenerator concept was really, uh, you know, if you look at the operating room of the 1800s. Mm -hmm. It was basically a theater, right? It was a, that's the, where the word operating theater comes from because it used to be a theater, and you had the you had the the patient uh, there uh, having surgery, and you had the anesthesiologist, and you had the physiologist, and you had the anatomist, and they were all talking, you know, and then you had an audience of students and other doctors, and they would all interject. Well, have you have you thought of this? Have you tried that? This is while the patient's having the surgery. You know, and that was uh, the operating theater of the 1800s. And if you uh, move forward to today and you look at an operating room today, it's a very sterile environment, right? Everybody knows what's going on. You walk in, you know exactly what you need to do. The surgeon knows what they're going to do. The anesthesia teams know what they're going to do. They go and do it. And, and, you know, this is not a place to practice, right? Or try new things. Yeah. So the question is, where are we today in the RegenMed field? Are we more like the operating theater of the 1800s or are we more like the operating room of the 21st century? Well, we really are more like the operating theater of the 1800s, right? We're still trying to find our way and, and discover the new things. And that's where this regenerator concept came out or the regenerate or, or the regenerate or, which is really, uh, you know, has different components to it. And the regenerator has really three components to it. It has a test bed, which is the most important. And this is a test bed where industry has invested millions of dollars to put equipment together. Uh, you know, uh, folks like Panasonic Health, mm -hmm. uh, Biospherix, uh, Oracle, and others have invested uh, major uh, funds to allow this equipment to be available for free to end users in a facility. So we have a facility where this test bed is, where all this equipment is there for free. Um, and then people, uh, startups 
and come and use this equipment for free. So, so this is a way to really help startups move forward and even emerging companies or companies or even established companies that are going in new directions, mm-hmm. right? They can come in, use this space for free and use this equipment for free uh, so that they can create their prototypes for manufacturing without making major investments at a time when they need that money the most, right? You don't want to, everyone to replicate that investment. Sure. Uh, so uh, what do, so the startups, the, the, the uh, gain for them is obvious, right? They're able to use those, all this equipment for free and they can create their prototypes without having to worry about the early investment. What do the companies uh, get back that put that equipment and resources for the test bed? Well, they, because it's such a new field, they get the interaction with the end user one-on-one so they can keep improving their, their equipment and technologies for the next generation of regenerative medicine manufacturing. And also when the small startups or emerging companies or whoever they are, they actually start to create their prototype for real, guess what? They're gonna turn back to the company, uh, you know, to buy equipment from the same company where they used the equipment to create the prototype, because that's what you need to do for the FDA, right? So, so it's a win-win for both parties, and uh, and and it's a win, you know, for the field, right? Because yeah. you're now learning how to manufacture these things for the future. The second component was an incubator, uh, which uh, which has a track. You know, we basically announced the incubator uh, this summer, and within three months, the incubator was full. Uh, <laughs> we had companies from. Uh, Korea, Atlanta, Florida, New York, Texas, all that came in to the incubator. So we are now expanding the space now even further to even get more incubator space because companies want to be close to where these technologies are being developed. And also companies like to be together because they gain from each other. You're right. You have have that, you know, it's like when you go to a restaurant row in any city, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody benefits. Um, and so, and the third component was a workforce development uh, yeah. part of it. And so we have a workforce development effort, uh, which is led by Gary Green, who led the first uh, uh, Department of Labor uh, effort um, in the field of biotechnology. And that included nanotechnology and RegenMed. And we work closely with them here in, in Forsyth County in Winston-Salem, because that's where uh, the school uh, Forsyth uh, uh, community college was based that started this effort for uh, workforce development. And so we were able to obtain a grant from the National Science Foundation to fund workforce development in the field of regenerative uh, using this model. So, because you need that workforce that can be also available nationwide. Absolutely. So by having the, 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 uh, the, the consortia of companies working together, by having this uh, test bed where uh, industry can provide pre-competitive equipment and end users can use it and they can talk together by having this uh, incubator space where companies can be here uh, and by having a workforce uh, development program, we can help to advance the field, not just regionally, not just here in Winston-Salem where sure. we are uh, and where the Institute is located, which is, a, which is you know, a, a nice thing to have also for us, of course, at WFM is to have these, all these companies around us that we can collaborate with. But in reality, it's for the field in general. It's a national, it's a national effort to bring RegenMed to the next level in terms of manufacturing. Absolutely.
Absolutely. It's, a, it's completely fascinating. It's just, a, as I said before the show, I, I got to get down there and check all this out. But you, you really are the, uh, you're creating this ecosystem. It's, and, and, you know, you're right in the epicenter of it all. So it, it's just so exciting to see, as I've watched you over the years, develop all these tools that all this come together. So it's really very inspiring. Um, you know, tell you, we've, so we've talked cells, scaffold, bioprinting, vascularization, microgravity large-scale manufacturing, you've taken us to the space station, you're doing countermeasures defense. Um, in 2022, uh, yeah, I, what else excites you? Because you, know, you, are, you also, aside from everything else that you just heard, uh, Dr. Atala, you, you also serves editor-in-chief Stem Cells Translational Medicine, uh, this monthly sort of leading uh, uh, scientific publication in terms of clinical utilization of all these tools. You see everything come by your way, everything that's happening, all the new stuff. What else gets you excited in 2022? Uh, is it CRISPR? Is it mic microRNAs, messenger RNAs? What's coming down the road that, you know, you say, I, I you know, if I had an additional trillion dollars, I'm going to throw it at this, that, and the other thing. Well, it's interesting you should say that, you know, there's so many conditions that we deal with where uh, gene editing would be helpful. And, you know, like CRISPR, like you said, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's, of course, has been a, a revolutionary technology, right? But the thing about it is, though, that it's very hard to apply. Sure. Uh, and so the combination of, of uh, regen met therapies with gene editing and small molecules is extremely powerful, yeah. extremely powerful. And I think that's where the future of the field is headed. I think there's so much work in, in that area that's going to benefit patients. Because at the end of the day, as you know, the only reason we're doing all of this is to make patients better. Yep. I mean, it's really how can we create better therapies that'll help you and your loved ones in the future. And so uh, we do believe that uh, these technologies will keep expanding over time uh, and their use will uh, keep increasing. And hopefully these new strategies will get us closer uh, even faster. Very important message. Tony, last question while I have you. Um, anything coming up that we should know about? Conferences you're going to be presenting at? Uh, new TED Talks you're going to be giving? Um, please take the floor. Anything else you want to talk about? Thank you. No, actually, you know, um, you mentioned stem cells translational medicine. Uh, it just moved over to uh, Oxford uh, uh, Press. Okay. And uh, our uh, founding editors and, and publisher uh, was basically and and Marty Murphy, they were just amazing. They published the very first journal in the field of stem cells, uh, the journal Stem Cells, mm -hmm. you know, came from them. And they now have, uh, uh, they have, after many decades, many, many decades, they have transferred both journals to, uh, to, Oxford, to Oxford. So we're excited to be working with them. And I think that, you know, uh, we're gonna keep through that journal uh, running conferences and uh, webinars to really help to advance the field uh, in terms of education and also interactions. Outstanding, outstanding. Uh, I, I, I'm rooting for you, Tony. I, I, uh, 
I, I love listening to everything you talk about, uh, other presentations and, and, and watching the progress, as I said, and just, you know, wishing you the best with all this as you take, continue to take it forward uh, for the benefit of, of all mankind. Um, for, for everybody that's going to be uh, listening to this particular episode uh, across the podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Dr. Anthony Atala, J-Link Professor, Director of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Obviously, uh, check out the organization, uh, check out uh, Regenerator, uh, pick up a copy of Principles of Regenerative Medicine if you want some late reading. But Tony, I want to thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing for society. And as we say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for all of us. Really amazing progress you're making. Thank you, Ira. We're very, very, very lucky to have an absolutely amazing team here at the Institute. I'm, I'm thankful to them. And thank you. It's always fun chatting with you. Absolutely. Always. Be well.